0: I have a question. How many of you still write letters by hand? Just show of hands. How many of you write letters by hand? Yeah, a few of us still, still do that. I like writing letters. I like doing it the old way. I love the, the practice and the art of sitting down and writing letters. Mainly because of the opportunity that it gives us to connect with people. I think in a more personal way than what we're able to do by sending emails or text messages. And uh, I'm not saying, of course, that we can't have a solid relationship with somebody by email or text message. Uh, Michelle was helping me the other night. We were uh, sitting around and I was... I'll give you a little background just real quick so that the story makes sense. There are a lot of streaming services that you can use to listen to music. And my sister, who I've recently connected with, sent me a song that she wanted me to listen to. And it was exclusively released on a particular streaming platform that I have not signed up for. And Frankly at this point I have signed up for so many things in my life that I absolutely refuse to sign up for anything else. So I have a song service that I use, I was not making a new account despite uh, whatever their marketing scheme was to have it released only in one place. And so Michelle had the subscription and I was asking for her help, I felt like an old man. Michelle helped me listen to this song. And. it was funny, she, she said back, you don't make it this much of an effort to watch or listen to everything that I send you. And I thought about it, and she was right. And I, I, my response was just, you know, I don't have to listen and watch everything that you send me because I get to come home to you every single day. I get to look forward to seeing you every single day. I get to connect with you in person. But for those people that we love that we don't have the opportunity to do that with, those people that are further away, listening to songs that you share between one another is, is actually a way to connect. Right? Because songs, poetry in general, but, but especially songs, I think they communicate more what's going on inside of us, what we're experiencing. And so it's a way to say, hey, this is my emotional state at the moment. When we write letters by hand, of course, we're able to do this. Um, I have, I would say, no less than six distinct hand, forms of handwriting. I write differently when I am being creative. I write differently than when I'm being, writing quickly or I'm taking notes or I'm jotting things down. It's almost ineligible, but I know what's going on most of the time. I write differently when I'm being analytical. I write differently when I'm simply making a list, when I'm energized, or when I'm hesitant. and I think all of those things come through when I sit down to write a letter, not just what the words actually say, but what I'm trying to communicate or how I feel about the subject that I'm writing about, whether there's a sense of trepidation or concern or genuine affection in what I'm writing. So I I love the art of writing letters. There's something incredibly intimate about the heart that is exposed when we sit down and do it the old-fashioned way. Most of our old-fashioned writing letters begin... What's the first word in those letters for those of you that currently do it or those of you that remember learning how to write a letter in elementary school? What's the first word that we normally include? Dear. 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 I think that's a sweet word. That kind of... Just introductory salutation sets the stage. You know, more often than not, when we're really communicating with someone, and I'm not just talking about passively, just trying to catch up with them and say, hey, I'm still thinking of you, but when we're really trying to connect with someone, the letters that we write aren't just a happy-go-lucky hello and a whimsical. A lot of times those letters that we write are corrective in nature. Maybe they're giving advice. Do you know why we start personal letters with the word dear? Dear literally means beloved. To say dear so-and-so, we're literally saying beloved. We're starting the letter with that introduction that I love you. Everything that follows this point comes from a place of me loving you. Whether it's correction, whether it's advice, it comes from me loving you. This morning, we are turning to a letter, a personal letter. A letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. This is actually our seventh sermon in a series through the study of 1 Thessalonians. And this is the first time we're going to open up the book of 1 Thessalonians. This morning I'd like you to open your Bibles with me, and we will be looking at just verse 1, the simple introduction, just the salutation, the equivalent of us writing, dear so-and-so, and saying that you are beloved in everything that follows, comes from a place of love. And we will observe that 2,000 years ago, people didn't start their letters with Dear, but they followed a different format. Letters in the first century, and particularly in Roman culture, had three main parts. They identified who was sending the letter, who they were sending the letter to, and then a general salutation, something like Dear. So if your Bibles are open and ready, I will pray and then read out loud and we will read together. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for the word that you have given us. Father, we realize that every word is inspired, every word has meaning, and Lord, we pray that you would give us insight into that meaning, that you would help us to understand your word, not just in our heads, but that you would give us a heart understanding that allows us to apply this to our life. Lord, help us to look at this book and to take from it the wisdom that needs to be applied to our lives. Help us to be directed. Help us to be corrected. Help us to reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the Bible says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The first question I ask when I begin a book study, and particularly when I'm studying a letter that's being written, so all of those epistles in the New Testament, is why are they writing this letter? Why did they even begin? And so that's the first question that we come to. This is a very familiar greeting. We've seen this. Any of us that have spent time reading the Bible and you've looked at the other epistles, no matter what they are, you are familiar with this kind of structure. In fact, we've probably even developed a habit to go ahead and skip past verse 1 in most of these letters because there's so little to be gleaned from them. But I'll reiterate once more, God didn't just inspire the middle sections of the letter. When we write dear in our letters, we do not do so absent-mindedly. As a matter of fact, if we don't mean it, we just exclude it, such as in more formal writings when we write to whom it may concern. God inspired every word. And so verse 1 is also inspired. But it does help us to piece together why this letter is so familiar when we understand the background. What's been happening behind this? And this is why it's taken us seven sermons to get to verse one of this letter because we've been spending time looking at the background. We followed Paul's missionary journey up through uh, uh, modern-day Asia, up through modern-day Turkey, and how the Spirit led him and directed him into Europe, a new frontier for the gospel. We followed him as he marches to Philippi, as he goes to Thessalonica, as he gets ran out and heads to Berea, as he gets ran out again and goes to Athens. And I tried to make note a few weeks ago of these missionary movements, what's taking place whenever we piece the bigger picture together. So as Paul is pushed out of Berea by the Jews in Thessalonica who were stirring up trouble, he moves down, but Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy are going to stay back. And as he arrives at the sea, he asks those that were marching with him or leading him, he asks them to send Silas and Timothy back as soon as they can. And this is when Paul arrives in Athens. But when they come back, Paul sends Timothy to, he sends Timothy to Thessalonica to check on the church that took shape there in as little as. Some say a month, I think more realistically two to three months, but a very short time. He sends Silas to go back to Philippi so that he can check on the church that took shape there. And then Paul arrives in Athens. His spirit is provoked within him. And with his spirit provoked, he cannot help it, but he begins to preach. And we saw that last week. What was the reaction? They said, but we will hear you again on this. They were listening with their minds, but they were not listening with their hearts. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that Paul simply left. Where did he leave? He headed to Corinth. Corinth. Another city where he was able to preach the gospel. And unlike these other places that he had been to, places where churches have been established for three months and four months, very short periods of time and in rapid succession, Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth. And so Silas and Timothy return to him while he is ministering to the people in Corinth. And they bring a report. They tell him about how the church in Thessalonia is doing, how the church in Philippi is doing. And they sit down and it's very encouraging. I mean, the church in Thessalonia, Paul makes note in chapter 1 that these believers, look at verse 8 in chapter 1, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere. He says... When I came into Corinth and I was telling people what the gospel was able to do in people's lives, I didn't have to speak very long because they said, oh, this sounds like what I heard about what happened in in Thessalonica. That's what I heard about what happened to the Thessalonians. Well, that's very cool. Paul is acknowledging that their faith had spread from where they were simply because it was so authentic. And so in doing this, they're very complimentary. Timothy comes back to Paul with to Paul with, with really exciting, really good news. Of course, do you think Timothy's report came with only good news? No. No. Listen, guys, an, an honest evaluation of how things are going, whether we're evaluating individuals or churches or ministries. An honest evaluation does not focus just what is going exceptionally well. Neither does it focus on what is going exceptionally wrong. It considers all things together and it presents them together so that an honest response can be made. When Timothy comes back, things indeed are going very well at the church in Thessalonia. But there are two issues, two concerns that really need to be addressed. And this is why Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and by the way, Silvanus is just the Greek version of Silas's name, so it's the same person, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, why they would sit down and why they would write this letter, why they would spend time writing this. There's two issues at the church in Thessalonica that be, can be addressed. Now, can we back away from this for just a second? How cool is it that a church that was established in as little as a month only has two primary issues? Dude, that's amazing. When I spend time talking to missionaries and the things that they're up against... The list goes on and on and on with all of the things that they're contending over and trying to solve and trying to lead through. But here's a church that after as little as a month of the gospel being preached and people responding to the Word, they only got two problems that need to be addressed. Now, where do I get these two problems? Right, you should be asking that question. Well, I get it by reading the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I I kind of have to read around the text, but what is Paul writing about in this letter? If I simply read this letter at face value, there are two major themes that get drawn out. The first problem that is being addressed in this church... Oh, let me back away from that. I'm not there yet. The the first problem that is being addressed in this church is, is leadership. You know, young things don't have organic leadership. The first problem that the church in Thessalonica had, I keep saying that, the first problem that the church in Thessalonica had was that they didn't have a very clear structure for leadership. And you can see that Paul builds up to this point. He really starts in the introduction, but if we jumped forward to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, he writes... We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. More subtly, Paul builds. He doesn't start out at this point that we find in chapter 5. But look at what's... Actually, we'll talk about this in just a second. He subtly carries this thread from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. And in a moment, I want to look at how he does that, how he builds up to this point of addressing leadership. The second error or the second issue that the church in Thessalonica was faced with was simply they didn't know what to think about the end times. And doesn't that sound like an important and exciting topic for the church to address today? We don't know what to think about the end times. What comes at the end? How does it all line up? And what are we supposed to do with it? So much of the letter of the, to the, both letters to the Thessalonians is dedicated to a discussion on the future hope that Christians have, that some scholars have included First and Second Thessalonians as essential books in, in understanding the end. That is, the coming of God's kingdom, the day of the Lord, judgment, where believers will be in all of this, days of tribulation, so on and so forth. Beginning in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. As he begins this discussion... Paul introduces what believers need to know, not just for the end, but what they need to know for today, right now. Not only does Paul elaborate on the coming of the Lord in chapter 5, verse 1, but he introduces this day of the Lord that will come, that will come like a thief in the night, says chapter 5, verse 2. When I look at this letter as a whole, You can almost hear the conversation when Timothy arrives and is meeting with Paul in Corinth and updating him on how things are going in this church that was established. We can almost hear how they're going back and forth with each other. Paul, Timothy, it's so good to see you. I've missed you. Tell me, tell me, how are the Thessalonians doing? And Timothy responds, well, it's incredible They're still meeting and they've grown. And as I passed back through Macedonia and Achaia on my way to return to you, I heard many others telling me and talking about the faith that was established there in Thessalonica. Paul asks Timothy, How wonderful! Oh, I too, I I met these Corinthians and they were already reporting to me all of the work that had taken shape in Thessalonica. These believers are an example for many churches. Timothy responds, but teacher. They are still up against hard times. They are still persecuted and trivialized by the Jewish rulers there. Just as they were when we left. Of course, this was expected. They endure. Their true faith will always endure. It's making it hard for the brothers to meet regularly, Timothy tells Paul. They make every effort and are very consistent, but there is a power struggle among men for leadership because it has been poorly defined. And these Jewish leaders have caused a great deal of confusion among the Gentile believers by prompting them to explain this blessed day of the Lord that has been referred to in the Old Testament Scriptures. This blessed day. They're, they're, these Thessalonians, as wonderful as they are, they're not as noble-minded. As the believers we met in Berea, they're trying to figure this out on their own instead of turning to the Bible. They're committed to the things that they have heard instead of turning to the Bible. Paul sits down, takes a deep breath, and he responds to Timothy. We must write to them, we must correct these errors. The church of Christ is dishonored by backbiting and gossip among her members. We must write to encourage them not only to establish their own leadership, but to honor it. We must clarify this confusion about things yet to come and make it meaningful to their life today. But we must do this gently. We need to put our kitty paws on as we address a sensitive Topic. Get your pen out, Timothy. Let's write this letter. When I look at this introduction, I look at those main themes that are already being hinted at, those things that we're going to spend some more time discussing this morning. I realize that there is an example for Christians to follow today. We must make sure that the people that we address know that they are loved by us. The gospel is ultimately a story of God's love for people. If our gospel presentation is not saturated, completely saturated in love, we do not do it justice in our presentation. Paul needed to address leadership. You know what I love about leadership? Nobody wants it. Nobody wants a leader, but we all need it. Every single person in this world needs a leader. We need someone to follow. We need someone to go to for advice. And sometimes we just need someone to go and make the decision for us. Nobody wants it, though. I mean, especially in our culture, we would much rather all be the leaders of our own life, all do our own thing, and like, we would like to believe that our decisions don't affect anybody else. The Jews and the other citizens that were in Thessalonica that had already stirred up the rabble to run the missionaries out had begun to plant seeds of doubt for the believers in Thessalonica. They had said, who is this Paul guy anyway? And why are you following him? Why are you believing him? And, and what is it that he knows, what authority does he have to come and preach to you a gospel different than that that has been taught in the synagogue? After being there only a short time, I think it's very understandable why leadership would have been a problem in the church in Thessalonica. In fact, I think it even makes sense why leadership is a problem in many small churches today. A common... well... This isn't my note, so I'm going to get in trouble. But a common um, a common statistic among Baptist churches. Do you know what the average tenure of a pastor is? How long do pastors normally stay in a church? According to research from uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, two to three years is the average tenure of a pastor. I don't know how you get anything done in two to three years. I don't know how you even establish yourself as an elder in a church in two to three years. Here's some guy, wanders in off the street, don't know him from Adam. He seems to have a decent reputation. He does well in an interview. He gets up and he says things that are challenging and difficult, and it's kind of hard to get along with them, and, and then he's out the door. You know what happens in most Baptist churches when there's disagreement with the pastor? People just say, I'll just wait you out. I'll be here when you're gone. Matter of fact, John Piper, uh, when he dealt with controversy at Bethlehem Church, he has a quote, and I've always thought about it, and I love it. I hope I could apply it to my ministry. He said, I will outlove and outlast those that behave like they aren't Christians. There's a leadership vacuum that begins to take shape when there's that much turnover. You've probably heard of leadership vacuums, right? Now, normally when we talk about leadership vacuums, the problem is that there's this hole, and normally in um, the way that I remember it, was leadership vacuums meant that the problem just didn't have a clear person that would be responsible for it. And so the problem was kind of everybody's problem and nobody's problem all at the same time. This happens when responsibility is not clearly defined. I like to say everybody, nobody, and somebody all work together. And so everybody, nobody, and somebody, those are names, right? Well, everybody had a job to do. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it, just go ahead and take care of it. And at the end of the day, nobody did it, because everybody was just waiting for somebody. That's what happens when there's a leadership vacuum. But there's something about man's nature, this character that is inside of all of humanity. I say man, I mean men and women alike, that strive for recognition, that have a prideful heart. That And, and I'm not saying, you know, this is something I think everybody deals with, that wants to be recognized, wants to be seen. The problem, the real problem that I see with the leadership vacuum is that it will be filled. When nobody steps up to the plate, somebody takes it over. And the problem, when leadership is established in this way, is the kind of people that fill those holes. If we're not careful about how we select leadership, how we define leadership, here's what happens. Those holes are filled by people with personality and charisma, people that are well-liked. If not that, they are filled with people who are popular, who are familiar faces. They may not have a lot of charisma, but they're well-known. Well, and if those two people can't fill the hole... Filled with people that are the most assertive, the most bullish. And just think about this for a moment the kind of leadership that comes from leaders that are established in this way. A leader that is selected because of their personality and charm most likely lacks the knowledge to be able to make good decisions. They have the charisma, they have the charm, but most of the time they lack the knowledge that they need to look at things and be reasonable. Now, somebody that is put into a leadership position because they're popular and well-liked or well-known, well, guess what? There's only one way to be popular. There's only one way to be friends with everybody. And normally it means you don't tackle the tough issues. Somebody that is put in a leadership position because of their popularity normally lacks the backbone to handle difficult situations. And somebody that is put into a leadership position simply because they were the loudest voice in the room or because they were bullish. I'll just be honest with you. That kind of person generally lacks compassion and they're not the person I want to get behind. The church in Thessalonica struggled with different people trying to fill the leadership vacuum, and this is what they were up against. I believe, according to the model that we find in Paul's ministry, especially the way that he uses Timothy as an emissary of sorts, part of the reason that Paul was sent there was to establish godly leadership. Paul doesn't send in this letter a hierarchy. He doesn't say, this is the way that you ought to do things. But he gives them, and this is what I love, is how gently he approaches this. He he knows the arguments that are being made against him. And look at how he approaches the situation in the introduction. I said this is a familiar letter. How do most of Paul's letters begin? Paul, an apostle, called by God. He bolsters himself. He claims his position. He establishes his authority as a writer. Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. And he goes on for six whole verses, talking, just talking about who this Paul guy is. 1 Corinthians, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ called by the will of God. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. To the church in Colossae, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Even the personal letters, those letters not written to an entire congregation or a church, but we look at 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle. But to the church in Thessalonia, and the church in the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Thessalonica alone, Paul drops the titles. He simply says, "Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy." That's it. And then he even builds this and and he makes this claim as, as he gently approaches this issue of leadership. He doesn't use his authority to make people see what they need to see. Rather, he contends with them gently. He even establishes what biblical leadership is, that that Paul had dropped these formalities. And rather than getting stuck in the fight, he backs away from it and he appeals to them. And he says, remember when I came to you, brothers, in chapter 2, verse 3, I did not come with fake motivations. Chapter 2, verse 5, he said, we didn't come with words of flattery. Chapter 2, verse 6, he said, we came and we simply desired the glory of God, nothing but God's glory. We didn't ask you to glorify us. We asked you to glorify God as we preach truth. Chapter 4, verse 1, he explains that leadership is conducted for the benefit of those who are being led. Godly leadership instituted rightly, coming from a loving place, is performed so that those who are being led would benefit. It's not after selfish gain. And then in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, he points to where real Leadership comes from. That is where real authority comes from. Not just from a man of good character, but real authority comes from the only one between heaven and earth that has any authority. Real authority comes from God who has spoken to us in these last days, not through the wisdom of men, but He has spoken to us through the Word. Real authority comes from here. It is what establishes authority and leadership in the church. It's not through man, but it is through Jesus Christ. Note that Paul continuously uses through this letter, Every time he says Jesus Christ, he says, Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the issue why they got ran out of Thessalonica whenever the Jews came to the Paratarchs and, and they were complaining about them? And what were they doing? That they, they said, they're trying to establish a new ministry. They're trying to usurp Jesus. And so Paul in this letter says, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, ruler of my life, master of my life, authoritative in my life, in control of what the church does. Loved ones, we talk about leadership and that's a very secular thing to turn to and I know it's familiar for most of us. But at the end of the day, I think all Christians have to realize that we are all leaders, and we are all followers. We may lead in different places, we may lead in different areas, but we are all leaders of our own right. At the same time, we are all followers in our own right. Everyone needs a leader. When we look at 1 Thessalonians, the question we must ask, Is do I lead the way that I see people leading in the world? Or do I lead the way that God leads me? Am I God-led? There is no leadership that is not following Christ that is worthy of the Christian's attention. The second issue that Paul would address is the issue of end times. The nerdy word is eschatology comes from the Greek eschatos, means last things, and then obviously tology to say something about it. So this is literally the things of the last things. I believe that most Christians today have decided that any discussion about eschatology is a waste of our time. I'm rather convicted about that perspective because the author of Hebrews includes last things as those elementary principles that Christians need to move past. The problem is that nobody really has the authoritative, validated answer when it comes to end times. And we've wrapped ourselves up in these debates about what we think the end times would look like, even when I get together with my preacher friends, this is often a conversation that comes up. People want to talk about it, and they want to debate it, and they want to say, well, what about this passage? And what about this passage? And, well, I think you've interpreted this wrong, and so on and so forth. And it's just a bunch of fun to sit around with a bunch of preachers and just poke buttons. I don't even participate in these conversations anymore. I just know the buttons to poke for my particular friends to really get them worked up. We just have fun with each other and we love each other and we, 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 we believe that everyone's faithful to the Word. Everyone wants to know what God's Word is and we realize that most of the things that we talk about when it comes to end times actually don't matter a whole lot. And this is actually what Paul's writing about in 1 Thessalonians. and The issue is, is not that we all believe the same thing. The issue is that it's practical for today. What happens when all sorts of adjectives that I can use, but I really don't think that they're helpful, but I'm going to use them anyway, and I'm just going to ask you guys to be gracious towards me. When we run away from conversations that are difficult, when we avoid conversations that are difficult, that is not good for us. It's not good for us. If someone disagrees with us, and we simply ignore it, or we simply decide to get real worked up about it in private, but not to talk to them about it, what that does inside of our own hearts is it plants seeds of doubt and frustration that haven't been addressed. And those things you can't get rid of on your own. You can't even bring those to God to get rid of because His Word tells you what to do with them. His Word tells you to take it to that person. So that frustration is going to stay there. The issue is that these Gentile believers that have believed in Thessalonica were not as noble as the believers in Berea. Rather than turning to the Word of God to be the authority in their life, they really based a lot of what they believed on Greek philosophy. As a matter of fact, a lot of Christians' perspective on the end times, namely what heaven is like, this is the one that just blows me away, When I hear Christians talking about heaven, they describe Greek philosophy, Greek theology, more than they describe Christian theology. And I won't belabor that point, but you look at the Bible, you see the distinctions are very clear. And so because this has become an issue, it seems like we almost just don't want to talk about end times at all. We almost just don't even want to go there. I thought it was interesting. I was reading Michael Bird's Systematic Theology, and he places last things in a different place than most theologians. Normally, it comes at the end. If you looked at our church's doctrinal statement, you would find that the very last article was about last things. And it's a very good statement on last things, too. I encourage you to look at it. Most of the time, we put eschatos, or things that are at the end, at the end. But Michael Byrd puts it second in his lineup. The first thing that he addresses is God. I think that's a really good place for theology to begin. If you're going to do theology, you should know who you're talking about, right? You should start in God. But then he says, the next thing, let's talk about the last things what a weird thing to do. His reasoning for it is that eschatology is one of the major threads that holds the whole system of systematic theology together. Not merely one of the subfields of theology, but a decisive register. A decisive register. He, he lists six reasons why this should be something that the church should pay attention to. The first one is that the last things are what gives Christians a glimpse into God's new world. They give us a glimpse into what is to come. Second, it is the only area of theology that successfully unifies what God is doing with His people. What is the relationship between the church and Israel? Have you ever asked that question? Modern news events, I think, have made us all ask that question, right? End times theology is the only thing that brings these together. Third, you can't do any discussion about last things without talking about Jesus Christ. And Bird contends you can't talk about Jesus Christ without talking about what he's going to do. This is essential to understanding our Lord and Savior. He says, everything about the Bible, everything about the Bible, when we read from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, everything about the Bible is charged that they take place in two arenas. They take place now, and they take place later. If we want the full picture, we have to look at both. He says... It's more than just practical. It is more practical than anything else because it directly impacts what Christians do today. It distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. More than any area of what the Bible says, what Christians believe about last things distinguishes us from other world religions. Guys, it's important. The author of Hebrews, inspired by God, included it in elementary doctrines. This young church that wasn't able to be discipled and established. What issues were they dealing with? But questions about end times. What? There is nothing more urgent or necessary that Christians care about what comes next. Because if we get so focused on what's happening now, we'll never be successful in anything that we do. We won't be successful in serving Christ. We won't be successful in ministering to others. We won't have urgency or zeal to correct our problems. Do you know why? Because we've taken our eyes off of tomorrow. We're supposed to live for today, but how are you supposed to live for today? With the hope that is expectant in the future. And listen to me, our view of what is yet to come is what establishes Christian hope. The reason we call it hope is because it's expectant in the future. If we take our eyes off of that, what are you living with? And so Christians become despondent, lethargic, tired, wearied, because they don't realize that God is in front of him, putting all of these things together. What makes the gospel is that there is a promise at the end of it. You can't present the gospel without talking about end times. God, in the beginning of everything, made a perfect creation. Man, sin. Sin, when it entered into the world, it damaged everything that God had created. It infects the world around us. It infects our relationships with one another. It infects our own mind. Sin has separated us from God. And there are so many people that know this. We know this internally without even needing a preacher to tell us. We know the consequence of sin because we felt it, because we live it, because we tolerate it. And they try to cover it up and they say, I just want to be a good person because if I could be good enough, I could cover up all this wickedness that is inside of me. But that's not the way sin works. There's nothing you can do to cover up sin. It is a charge on our bill and it must be paid. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The only way to cover it up is to pay with, pay for it. God knew this. He knew this when He created everything. He knew that this would happen. And so He sent His Son. He sent His Son to die on a cross so that everyone who believes in Him would not die. What's the next part? Say it loudly. Like you mean it, like you love it, like you're excited about it. Everyone who believes in Him will not die, but will have... Amen. Y'all just did eschatology. Everyone who believes in Him will not die, but will have everlasting life because we believe that Jesus Christ made the final payment, the wages of sin were paid on the cross because the perfect man, completely God, died and paid those wages. And because He died, All of us who are believing in Him today have a hope in tomorrow. No matter what struggles or burdens or trials or tribulations may come, no matter what we're facing today, there is a hope of tomorrow if we believe in Jesus Christ. I believe this is exactly the issue that prompted Luke when he was writing Acts 17 to make note of the noble mind in the Bereans. Because even though they were Gentile, just like those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, even though the Bereans went to God's Word, and they asked, what does this say? We come to the Bible with so many views of our own doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a long time or you've not been a Christian a very long time. You have an established worldview. We come to the Bible and we look at it and we try to understand it and if we're not careful, we end up putting our worldview into what God says. This is why those Thessalonians were confused about last things. They brought what they wanted into the Bible and they didn't have a leader to tell them to stop it. So God used Paul, Silas, and Timothy to write a letter that gently directs them towards the authority of real leadership and teaches them what they need to know for life today. Friends, I believe I've preached the gospel this morning. I just want to say one thing. If you have forgotten the promise of hope that lies in the future, or you have never experienced the hope that waits for you, you don't have to run away from God anymore. He's ready for you to respond this moment and this day. And His arms are ready to embrace you and give you that hope. What do you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word that teaches us, for that, inst- that instructs us, but more importantly, Lord, your word that changes us. Father, would you take our hearts this morning? As we sang this morning, you lead us. God, would you let us give you our hearts? Would you take them and shape them and mold them into your image? Father, we plead with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?